Welcome to IFL Science The Big Questions, the podcast where we invite the experts to explore the biggest mysteries of science with your host, Dr. Alfredo Carpinetti. Welcome to IFL Science The Big Questions, a series where we ask experts some of the most pressing mysteries of science, technology, and humanity. I'm your host, Dr. Alfredo Carpinetti, IFL Science Senior Science Writer, and it is wonderful to welcome Professor Liad Mudrik from the School of Psychological Science and Segal School of Neuroscience at Tel Aviv University. The question this time is, what is consciousness and how does it arise? Professor Mudrik, is great to have you here. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. First of all, thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. So I work, as you said, in Tel Aviv University. Um, my lab, which has wonderful students, that's a great privilege, works on consciousness, trying to understand first how it comes about, so how it emerges from neural activity. Second, what is what are other, uh, its functions? So um, for what types of processes do we need conscious processing? Or what type of processes could also take place without us even being aware that we are doing them. Uh, we are also interested in that respect in consciousness role in decision-making and the voluntary action. And finally, we also ask how um, does our knowledge uh, and, and beliefs, how do they affect our perception? How do they affect our conscious perception of the world around us? Thank you very much. That is very, very interesting work. Um, let's start with a big question. What is consciousness? How do we define it? Okay, that's a huge question. And <laughs> philosophers and scientists have been struggling with it for years, centuries, trying to understand what is this intricate phenomenon that is so intriguing and so interesting that on the one hand, and this is a huge paradox, on the one hand, there is nothing that is more immediate to us. This is something that we don't need any mediators in order to experience. We just have it from the, you know, from the moment you open your eyes, in the morning until you go back to sleep and also when you have dreams at night, you are conscious and no one should explain to you what your consciousness is, you just have it. But on the other hand, this is probably one of the least understood phenomena, although it is so close to us and so, and so intimate, we have such intimate knowledge about it, we don't understand exactly how to define it, we don't understand exactly how it comes about, and what are its neural correlates or neural mechanisms that, get, that give rise to it. So... That was just kind of a disclaimer to say that whatever definition I'm going to give you will be something that people debate over. So this is something that people have been trying to understand for a long time. Now, when I talk about consciousness, I am not talking about self-awareness or political consciousness or anything of that sort that is very, very high level. Our strategy, and I think that many people in the field share that strategy, is to talk about consciousness in the sense of our experience itself, the way we experience the world. If you want, I guess the most well-known uh, um, examples are my favorite example, because I love chocolate dearly, is what happens when you put a chocolate cube in your, mind, in your mouth or, you know, whatever. Um, the, the receptors on your tongue can process the information about that chocolate that you are just eating. They can know, for example, or they can send information about the high level of glucose that you have in that chocolate. But on top of that, you are also experiencing the exquisite taste of chocolate. 
And the question is, what allows us, as opposed to machines, not only to process information, but also to know how it feels? To eat chocolate, to taste chocolate, or to, to listen to music, to see the redness of red or the blueness of sky, and so on and so forth. So this is the greatest mystery. This phenomenal aspect of experience, what philosophers call qualia, uh, the how it is like to eat chocolate, to, to smell a rose, um, to see, as I said, the, the sky um, at sunset. So this is what we are trying to pinpoint. And as you can imagine, it's not an easy task because you cannot just you know, measure it. You don't have a ruler to say, okay, we, I have 30% of awareness now, or I have this type. And there are many, of course, empirical challenges. But I think that although this is probably one of the most challenging fields to study, it's very, very interesting and also very important due to the disorders of consciousness that uh, abound. And maybe the study of consciousness could help us deal with those. And also, of course, there are ethical and philosophical questions that accompany this type of, of but I guess we'll get to that also later on in the conversation. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for that. Uh, um, you see, something uh, for me, uh, very much background of uh, uh, hearts, uh, hard science or physics, uh, actually hard science. Uh, <laughs> but it's, so for me, it's just like, how do we sort of ground it into reality? How does consciousness relate to our brain? Uh, is it in our neurons? Uh, is it the electrical signals among them? How, and I understand that uh, maybe most of these questions are just like, we don't know yet, but- uh, We know some. Okay. We, we have some, some understanding. So let me first maybe say, how can we study it even? So how do we gain this type of knowledge? Because as you say, as opposed to physics, the phenomena itself is, is not easy to study. Um, so first, I, I must acknowledge all the people that you know came before me and my generation, the kind of founding fathers and mothers of the field, with, who developed um, very elegant methodologies in order to create an experimental condition where I present you the very same stimulus, let's say a face. And I do it in a way that sometimes you will see it and sometimes you don't. So although the physical um, input remains constant, your conscious experience changes. And we have many ways to do that. So for example, I can flash a stimulus very quickly um, in front of you, or I can present a different image to each eye which is a very unique experience because then your consciousness just switches between these two images instead of seeing them on top of each other. So although the on screen, the very same information is being presented, your consciousness changes, the content of your consciousness changes. So you could, you have all these very interesting uh, methodologies that you can use in order to create an experimental condition in which we hope all other factors uh, are uh, kept constant, but the changes in your own experience. So that is one way to study consciousness. Another way to study consciousness is to look at states of consciousness. So for example, you could ask what happens when I am having a dream versus when I am in non-REM sleep stage. Or I can ask what happens for a patients in a coma or vegetative state or locked in syndrome or other types of disorders of consciousness as opposed to healthy wakefulness. So all these types of contrasts allow you to ask what is the neural difference between these different states. Um, of course, another challenge when you study consciousness is how you measure it. 
right? Because as opposed to something you can simply observe, when we talk about consciousness, we are bound to rely on the report of the subject or some behavioral measures that would tell us what he or she feel or experience. We could also try to develop neural indexes for your experience, but they will, of course, always be validated through report. So at the end of the day, I have no way of knowing what you experience other than asking you. And here we also developed different measures in order to make sure that the reports subjects give us are valid and are trustworthy because these are kind of the building blocks of, of the experiments that we are using. Today, there are also new experiments where they try to um, track um, what subjects experience, for example, using their eye movements. So without asking them or inferring from their behavior in one way or, an, or another. So this is how we study consciousness. And your question, I believe, was what do we know about the brain and consciousness? Um, so it's, it's actually very interesting. Uh, in the late 90s, um, Christoph Koch, whom I had the privilege to do my postdoc with, um, and Francis Crick, the Nobel laureate, uh, published a series of studies that in a way paved the way for the neuroscience of consciousness. I should say there have been uh, psychologists and neuroscientists that worked on this project way before that. But, in, but many people regard that as a milestone in the history of the field because it kind of made it legitimate to work on consciousness as a, a key a topic of research for neuroscience. Um, and their kind of um, suggested course of action was let's try to track the neural correlates of consciousness, the minimal set of neural activations that accompany any conscious experience, whatever that may be. And then you can see in the history of the field, many studies trying to do that using the paradigms I, I mentioned before. And some candidates indeed have emerged. So people have spoken about synchronization between different brain areas. Um, a major candidate was frontal uh, activation. So whenever there is activity in frontal areas, uh, or I would say it either, the other way around, whenever subjects report consciously perceiving something, we typically see uh, frontal activations. The ventral stream in the temporal lobe, which is um, a, um, a group of high-level visual areas, is also um, has also been implicated in um, conscious perception. But uh, with time, there have also been studies that try to challenge these findings and say, wait, but maybe this is not, these are not the correlates of uh, consciousness per se, but rather of the processes that accompany a conscious experience. So for example, maybe it's a correlate of the report rather than of the experience itself. And currently there are several theories of consciousness, um, each trying to suggest a different mechanism that gives rise to conscious experience. If you want, I'm happy to explain about some of these. Um, and and um, all of them basically try to explain what in the brain uh, allows us to experience. And there are different accounts. Um, and again, up to you if you want me to go into details about several of those. Yeah, it would be uh, interesting on uh, just uh, the vague idea of how consciousness uh, okay. arises. I'm sure that there's still uh, a lot of work uh, to do to pinpoint. <laughs> and I'm also happy to tell you about one specific project where we are trying to um, 
um, arbitrate between some of these theories. Um, cool. Yeah. So um, the first, uh, I, I, let me first try to maybe describe four major theories in the field. I should say there are plenty <laughs> <laughs> theories of consciousness. Uh, it seems like many people have very interesting ideas about how consciousness arises from neural activity. Uh, I'm here focusing on the four that are most, uh, I would say, prevalent uh, and cited, uh, but there are many others. So I won't do justice to the field by only focusing on those, but let, let's start, let's use that as a start. So um, one of the um, um, leading theories is global neuronal workspace. Uh, it was originally suggested as a psychological theory by Bernard Bars and then developed into a neuroscientific one by uh, Stanislas Dehan and Lionel Nakash. And the main idea there is that we have a central kind of executive system, uh, which is called the global neuronal workspace. Uh, its neurons are specialized neurons that are located mostly in frontoparietal areas, so frontoparietal areas. Um, and they kind of get activations from many processing modules that are spread throughout the brain. And the idea is that unconscious processing unfolds automatically in these processing modules that are encapsulated. So, for example, the area called fusiform face area. The name is not very important for us, but the specific area that knows how to decode faces or process faces can do that unconsciously as well. But uh, when the information passes or crosses a threshold, then it enters into the global workspace that broadcasts it throughout the brain. And that allows integrative processing. It allows accessibility of the information. And this is when it becomes conscious. So whenever uh, some kind of message or signal or presentation is strong enough to cross a threshold to be amplified by attention, it can be uh, broadcasted throughout the brain. And that is the um, kind of uh, founding principle of, of consciousness for that theory. Another theory uh, called the integrated information uh, theory developed by Giulio Tononi, mostly recently Christoph Koch has also joined him. Um, this theory is very interesting. It attracts a lot of attention, but also a lot of criticism. Um, and I think one of the reasons is that its starting point is very different from other theories. So it doesn't start with the data. It actually starts with phenomenology. So what Tononi and his group have been doing is to say, what are the necessary and sufficient characteristics of a conscious experience? And they list from phenomenology, from introspect in introspection, they list five axioms, which for them are uh, the necessary components of any conscious experience. Um, so it has to exist. Uh, it is uh, comp composed of different uh, aspects. It is nevertheless unified. So it is one, it is integrated, um, it's informative, and it also excludes uh, uh, parts of information that are not included in it. So it's very definite. It is what it is as the theory goes. And from the five axioms, they derive postulates kind of conditions for what should be the physical sub substrate that could give rise to such an experience that has these five axioms. And they try to formulate it mathematically and even develop a measure called phi 
that is supposed to quantify the consciousness of the system based on its structure. Um, and it's, it's a very complicated theory. I won't go into the details, but the idea is that based on the state of the system and the structure of it, you can derive an unfolded structure that kind of takes into account the past states and the future states of the system. And that is the conscious experience. So uh, it's, a, it's an intriguing theory. As I said, uh, it gains a lot of attention, but also a lot of, of criticism. Um, and it's, it's a very interesting option. Um, then I, I next uh, theory in line is the higher order um, uh, thought theory. So here the idea is, and that interestingly, that also comes from philosophy originally. So David Rosenthal is the philosopher who suggested this. And then with Hakuan Lau, a neuroscientist, this became a scientific theory. The idea there is for uh, a piece of information to become conscious, it's not enough to have the sensory areas decoded or represented. You should have a higher order state that kind of points at it and tells you, you are experiencing this information now or this representation now. Without this higher order state, you would just not, you would, you would process the information, but you, you will not be conscious of it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't experience it. And the assumption is that this higher order state uh, that is related to metacognition will be located in frontal areas, specific frontal areas that are highlighted by the theory. And last but not least is uh, the recurrent processing theory, um, which is kind of the negative, the mirror image of the higher order state uh, one, which is basically um, a theory that says what is needed is the activation in the uh, sensory areas itself. We don't need a higher order state to point at that, but what is needed is recurrent processing to these states. So we need some kind of a feedback loop that would make this specific, that would allow some figure ground separation and integration processes and uh, would make that experience conscious. So you see, you have these different accounts and different theories. And one question you could ask is how do you um, differentiate between them and how do you arbitrate between them? And in our work that we have done that uh, is not published yet, but um, we are hoping to submit it soon, we also looked at how the field has been testing these theories. And what we've seen is that each theory basically kind of um, develops um, independently in parallel without much crosstalk between the theories. So kind of each theory proves itself in a way. Uh, and, and we don't see enough challenges from one theory to another theory. And a very interesting initiative uh, by uh, Dawid Potgater from the um, uh, Templeton World uh, Charity Foundation, he uh, one day said, uh, let's try to use adversarial collaboration in order to test these theories. So I had the immense pleasure of uh, attending a, um, a meeting in, in the Allen Institute um, for Brain Research in, in Seattle, um, led by Christoph Koch, uh, where he invited uh, representatives of each of these theories. There, then it was three theories, GNW, Global Neuronal Workspace, uh, IIT, Integrated Information Theory, and Higher Order Thought Theory, to sit together with philosophers, with uh, uh, impartial scientists like myself, I don't belong to any of these theories, um, 
and said, let's try together to think of experiments that could test the theories. And this started an, a very long process. Uh, we are now kind of halfway through um, after more than three years of working on this. Uh, where we developed experiments that would test the global neuronal workspace and the integrated information theory with the people who proposed the theories, right? Um, I now, by the way, remember that when I uh, presented the recurrent processing theory, I failed to acknowledge Victor Lame, who is one of the uh, major proponents of that theory. Um, so there it was, Giulio Tononi and Stanislas Dehan, um, you know, two of the um, leading scientists in the field, who have not really engaged with one another for a long time, now sitting together trying to think, how can we test our theories? And from that came uh, two experiments uh, that we are now running in six different labs around the world. So uh, fMRI, MEG, EEG, and ECOG. So three different techniques um, for neuroscience with a database that is going to be um, very large. So more than five, about 500 um, uh, data sets from 250 subjects that are going to be run um, on these experiments. And the nice thing is that it's like fully open science. So um, all the predictions and the analysis plans are pre-registered and will become uh, open to the public within um, two weeks or so. Um, and the proponents of the theories actually say, we um, kind of um, confirm that the theory, that the experiments are well-designed to test our theories. Here are our predictions. Now let's see what happens. Uh, and I think it, it took a lot of courage from these two people, uh, Tononi and Dehan, to kind of put their theories uh, on the line, uh, put their necks on the line, if you want, after you know, 20 years of working on these theories or even more, and saying, this is what should happen. If it won't happen, to the very least, I would have to revise my theory. I'm not kind of deluding myself to think that after our experiments, uh, one of the theories will just say, okay, I'm wrong. But uh, at least some aspects of the theories would have to be revised. And I think this is the way to make uh, progress. And I must here acknowledge the two people, the two people that um, uh, work with me to lead this uh, consortium, uh, Michael Pitts and Lucia Meloni. So the three of us um, work together in order to coordinate this, this thing. And, uh, and hopefully within two to three years, we will have answers. And I could tell you at least which parts of the theories were uh, challenged, or if things go extremely well, which theory uh, uh, was, was challenged substantially, uh, which is what we are hoping to, to achieve here. One of the most amazing thing about this project is that uh, besides the ability or the opportunity to arbitrate between different theories and find uh, exciting, I hope, findings about the brain and consciousness, it also, provoke, uh, it also uh, promotes uh, open science and team science. So I get to work with the most amazing group of postdocs and uh, PIs, principal investigators, from whom I, as a relatively young researcher, learn all the time. Uh, I, we get to work with philosophers. We have the proponents of the theories. And of course, the two people with which I work regularly, uh, Michael Pitts and Lucia Meloni, um, together we are trying to lead this uh, effort. And I just learn all the time from all these people. So aside from the scientific aspect of it, there is also a sociological aspect that I hope would also kind of inspire others to work together in order to solve big questions. Because 
you can solve many interesting questions in your own lab, but sometimes there are questions that are so big that require kind of big science and team science. And I'm just happy to have the opportunity to be a part of such a project. That is fantastic. Uh, that is uh, wonderful that there is... Uh, an entire system now to test uh, these two leading theories uh, yeah. in the consciousness. Right. Um, well, the, um, the discussion about the theories actually made me uh, consider a couple of interesting questions. Uh, mm. um, one is uh, especially um, really to the sensory experience uh, and if there is like um, the higher order, then how does, uh, what about animals uh, in a sense? Uh, are yeah. animal conscious? Uh, we know that uh, um, there are animals that are self-aware, but uh, how did that, um, that plays into human consciousness? Yeah, research? that's an excellent, ex excellent question. I should say, by the way, that there is a, another project within the same initiative of TWCF that tests these two theories in animal uh, models. Uh, and there are also other projects of adversarial collaboration working on other theories. And, and one more thing about that project, it really is um, probably the most complicated thing I have ever done. Uh, but the reason I'm very happy about it is because, A, I think that it's a new way to do science in a sense. So in physics, they have been doing such adversarial collaborations. There have been some cases in cognitive neuroscience, but this is probably one of the largest scale ones in our field. And I am learning so much, both from the theory proponents and from the postdoc, the amazing postdocs that we have there, and from my uh, collaborators, uh, Michael Pitts and Lucia Meloni. I'm just, you know, I'm relatively young, a uh, young researcher. Um, and it's just, I'm amazed by, by uh, the, the wisdom of, of others and the enthusiasm about trying to solve the, the problem of consciousness. So it was just kind of important for me to also say that. But now going back to your question about animal consciousness, this is, of course, one of the greatest challenges. Um, and I, I spoke before about ethical considerations. So what, let's say that we were able to arbitrate between the theories. One crucial uh, implication for that, once the field kind of converges on one theory of consciousness, that theory should also provide us with tools to determine which organisms are conscious and which are not. Um, and that relates to animals, that relates to AI, which we might discuss later on. Uh, and it becomes more and more pressing that relates to uh, fetus, you know, uh, feti. Um, um, which, of course, also is, is highly uh, important ethically. Um, so the importance of this question goes well beyond our intellectual curiosity, which is huge, but <laughs> also ethically, it's, it's very important. Um, so here, it's not as if I can draw a line and say, from this uh, threshold onwards, these animals have consciousness and these animals do not. Some think that bees are a good model to study consciousness and ants are a good model to study consciousness. Some say, no, you have to have at least some kind of um, um, developed, um, stru structurally developed a, a cortex in order to have that. Um, so we don't have that criterion yet. For some of the theories, they have estimations. Uh, integrated information theory, 
um, claims that they have this kind of consciousness meter, meter where they use a method called zip and zap. They give a, a TMS pulse. Uh, TMS is like a, a, a magnetic coil that allows you to give a, a, an electromagnetic pulse to a specific area and either activate it or inhibit it um, temporarily. And then you can see how that signal um, um, spreads throughout the brain. And using that method, they were able to, for example, differentiate between uh, clinical states of consciousness. Similarly, for GNW, there are experiments that try to um, diagnose patients based on their responsiveness to a series of stimuli and their neural activity that is evoked by it. So we have some uh, tests of consciousness. I would say that they are still under work. So we don't have something that I can, okay, Give me that robot and I will tell you it is conscious or it is not conscious or that animal. Um, if you ask me personally, given the theories, I think that most of them would predict that most of the mammals should have uh, consciousness. Um, but uh, again, this is something that is still undecided, I would say. Uh, there has been a kind of a manifest of consciousness researchers. I think it was the early 2000, where they um, explicitly kind of stated that animals have consciousness and so on, but it's still under work, I would say. Thank you for that. Uh, and uh, to uh, move immediately on to artificial intelligence, uh, instead of discussing if, uh, oh, can we realize uh, if artificial intelligence are conscious, if we work to get uh, maybe in the next few years uh, if, uh, to a theory of consciousness that is uh, quite solid, uh, even if it's not complete, uh, do you think uh, um, there is a scope to um, sort of recreate it artificially? Yeah, the million dollar question, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I would say um, the following. So, um, I don't want to be a prophet uh, and I don't awesome. want to speak about things I'm, I'm not 100% uh, sure of, although who is 100% sure of anything these days? Um, there are some things we, are, we can be certain of. Um, but uh, there has been an interesting paper in science uh, a few years ago written by Stanislas Dehan and Sid Guider and um, um, Hakon Lau, where they define a set of functions for that if an AI would have those functions, they would consider it conscious. Um, these functions relate to being able to mon monitor oneself, to globally broadcast information and integrate information. It's of, of course, well-rooted within the theories from which they come. Um, and they say, if there will be a system that is able to do all that, then it will be conscious. Of course, they are not talking really about the qualitative aspect that we are interested in. Like, will it uh, feel the redness of red? I don't know. In humans, these functions may go with that experience. Does it necessarily have to be the case also for an AI? Um, we don't know. If you ask um, the integrated information theory, it will tell you in order for that AI to be uh, conscious, it has to be able to physically influence itself. So a simulated mind cannot be conscious because it does not physically change itself. It cannot have a, 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 
an impact on itself from the intrinsic point of view. So the theories are kind of also divided on that question of, of an AI. But you also uh, rightfully pointed out the problem of knowing. And uh, you don't have to be a scientist. It's, in, it's enough to watch Westworld in order to understand the complexity here. So we can imagine a robot or a zombie. If you're a philosopher, there are famous zombie experiments thinking of people that look just like us and behave just like us, but have no conscious experience. How would we ever be able to tell between these two uh, people apart, um, two types of people? Um, and it's a huge question. Um, I don't have a good answer. I could only tell you that the search is fascinating. So uh, people have been trying to experiment with it um, and have been trying to think about it. Uh, and as I said before, I think one of the reasons projects that try to arbitrate between theories are so important is because they might also get us closer to developing clear criteria about what is and what is not conscious. Thank you very much. Uh, I know you said you don't have a good answer, but I think that was a pretty good answer. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, all right. So I think we're moving to the last question, which is a little bit more philosophical. Um, um, a friend uh, who's a neuroscientist, Dr. Steven DeCosta, um, he obviously studied the brain and he always described that it's a little bit like a visual illusion uh, that... Uh, you are using your consciousness to understand consciousness. And so in so many uh, visual tricks or illusion, you know what the trick is. Uh, I don't know, maybe there is uh, lines that appears to be longer because of uh, like the shape of arrows and you know that that is wrong, but uh, uh, it actually, um, you cannot convince yourself uh, that it is not wrong. So my question is, um, how does this understanding of consciousness uh, help us uh, or help humanity in general can bring us more control over ourselves, or is just uh, absolutely that we will be understanding ourselves without being able to change ourselves? Okay, so if I understand you correctly, you're now pushing the conversation toward the question of free will, right? It could be free will, or it could be just uh, um, the way if... Uh, by studying consciousness, we can be more in control of ourselves. Uh, I think uh, if you want to discuss free will, I'm happy with free will. It's uh, definitely whichever. It's a small question, right? Free yeah. will. Let's, you know, let's yes. leave it to the last minute of, of our conversation. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I think it's, it's related. So our ability to control ourselves or to influence ourselves seem to, at least to some, to kind of presuppose uh, the existence of free will uh, in, in a way. Uh, I, I, I think you can uh, think about it in several ways. So one, um, it is true that there are visual illusions that we cannot break, but we actually have an, experience, an experiment in the lab that is now ongoing, and I, we're hoping to submit that also very soon. I'm telling you all my secrets here, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> where we show that we can semantically prime people to either see more or less of a visual illusion. So some aspects of visual illusions are amenable in a way or you know, uh, prone to being influenced. But you are very correct that visual illusions are often given as an example that no matter how much we are aware of the illusion and how much we know about it, we still see it the way it does. 
the way it looks because our brain is structured in that way and our processing mechanisms are um, prone to uh, process the information in a specific manner. Um, I still think that uh, our understanding of the problem enriches our ability to cope with it in a way. And I'm not sure it's a problem. So my fascination with the question of consciousness is not because I want to change my consciousness. I'm pretty happy with our conscious experience. I think that human beings have been able to do amazing stuff um, with the way they experience the world. We also done some pretty bad stuff, but uh, we can focus on the good side. Uh, and uh, I, for me personally, the main motivation is just the puzzle, like to understand how come that neural activity, which is completely physical, right? How does it give rise to a quantitative experience that is that that is uniquely mine? That is um, um, that has a subjective character to it, and it's so distinct and so clear. How can that be? How can it be like the taste of chocolate? It's a it's a miracle. It's a wonder, and I really want to understand that wonder. So my motivation is not to to control my demeanor or whatever better. But I do think that there is also an interesting question about the role consciousness might play in our decision-making. And that is where I think free will gets in, into the picture. So I think it's very interesting to ask how much of our decisions are made consciously or deliberately and how much of them are unconsciously motivated and try to tease those apart and ask what is the role of consciousness in these types of decisions. And I think here, knowledge can actually help you. Um, so I'm, for example, when I watch TV uh, with my kids now and I uh, see some blunt example of a product placement where they, the main character is doing something with whatever, some brand new computer, and I warn my kids, this is now they are trying to play a trick on your consciousness, right? They're trying to persuade you. So here I think that becoming more aware of the unconscious influences on our decisions is actually beneficial and might help us break the illusion, so to speak. And I, I'm, I'm, I belong to those who think that our decisions are not free in the sense that we can do otherwise, and I'm happy about it. In the sense that I wouldn't want to be a creature that is completely random and then that acts in a different way when the same decision is presented to him or her over and over again. I actually want to make the same decision if I'm presented with the same alternatives, because I think that what that is what makes me consistent, and that is what make me makes me liad. Uh, I don't want to have some random flip coin, uh, flip coin to determine if I'm going to study this or that, or marry that person or another, or even decide which chocolate to eat, which, as you already understood, is a major decision for me. I want to be driven by my values and my beliefs and my um, knowledge rather than by some enigmatic free will that is completely um, random. So in a way, I think we can be happy about our uh, lack of freedom and understand that this is actually a new way of, of freedom, acting you know, based on your own motivation. Not always we can do that, right? Sometimes we act and feel, we ask, why did I do that? This is where I feel that I'm not free. Not when I have the hypothetical option to do otherwise. But this is already a completely philosophical discussion. And there are many philosophers who would think that what I'm saying here is probably nonsense. But some philosophers I know 
would agree with me because I read their books and I'm basically quoting them to you now. So, so yeah. Well, that was absolutely uh, great. Uh, and the entire discussion has been absolutely fantastic. So uh, please let me thank you, Professor Madrek, for this fantastic journey into consciousness, uh, what we know, what we don't know, and what we might soon find out. Thank you. Thank you so very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to IFL Science, The Big Questions. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And join us next time when we'll be talking about the elusive goal to achieve unlimited energy. Have a great week.